The Gays Against Guns Show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Radio Gag. I'm Sarah Lilly. This week, Trisha Cook and I are pleased to bring you another Radio Gag, our weekly Gays Against Guns radio show that follows the format of our bi-weekly Gays Against Guns meetings. Now, since we're here at a new time, we're going to have Trisha read our mission statement so you can find out a little bit more about Gays Against Guns. Gays Against Guns New York is an inclusive, direct action group of LGBTQ people and their allies committed to non-violently breaking the gun industry's chain of death. Investors, manufacturers, the NRA, and politicians who block safer gun laws. We are New York-based, but work with gag chapters in other cities to ensure safety for all individuals, particularly vulnerable communities such as people of color, women, people who struggle with mental health issues, LGBTQ people, and religious minorities. GAG condemns white supremacy, all instances of excessive force by police, and police militarization. You can find us every Thursday night at the LGBTQ Center at 7 p.m. at New York City's LGBT Center. All who want to fight for better gun laws are welcome. And on the show this week, this week at our new time of 6.30, Gays Against Guns, are looking at the role of guns in domestic violence. We'll discuss the Lautenberg Amendment, also known as the Domestic Violence Offender Gun Ban, and attempts to keep guns away from abusers. We also discuss coercive control, where guns are left in a home to maintain the constant threat of deadly violence. And we'll look at the correlation between domestic violence and mass shootings in our country. But before we go there, let's begin as we do every meeting by having Trisha remind us why GAG exists with our In Memoriam. As a victim of domestic violence, Maria Teresa Macias continually worked toward two goals, to live in peace with her children and to help other women who were victims of abusive men. Maria Teresa married Avelino Macias in 1980 in Mexico. They started a family and moved to Sonoma County in Northern California where she worked as a house cleaner, and he is a laborer. From the beginning, Teresa lived in fear of Avelino, who had a sadistic temper and would beat and rape her repeatedly. His violence wasn't only directed toward Teresa. He also molested and beat their three children. His temper was so quick that he would often use Teresa's arms as an ashtray, crushing his cigarettes out on her bare skin. In 1995, Teresa fled with her children to a women's shelter where she filed a police report against her husband and got a restraining order. She also filed a report with Child Protective Services, making clear she was a witness to many of the physical and sexual assaults against her children. After receiving the report, CPS told Teresa that if she didn't keep the children away from Avellino, they would intervene and take the kids, which they did a month later. Those close to Teresa say she was devastated by the loss. Within weeks, Teresa recanted her report in hopes of getting the state to return her kids, but to no avail. In the final three months of her life, with her children still in protective services, Teresa and witnesses reported Avellino's crimes against her to the Sheriff's Department at least 18 different times. On these occasions, Avellino was never once arrested, cited, or charged, despite California law requiring the department to do so. On the contrary, the Sheriff's Department called Teresa crazy, told her to quit coming in and to just write down her complaints instead. 
With all the witnesses willing to help and with Teresa's ample documentation, the department could have arrested Avelino at any time, with or without a restraining order. And they could have chosen from any number of charges, felony stalking, breaking and entering, trespassing, and more. Avelino often laughed at Teresa for continuously calling the sheriff. He would tell her, the sheriff protects me more than they protect you. And he was right. Over the course of those three months and 18 different reports of abuse, the sheriff's department only even bothered to write two police reports. In the spring of 1996, Teresa and her mother, Sarah, went to a house cleaning job at an upscale Sonoma home where Avelino lay in wait. He approached Teresa on the sidewalk in front of the house and killed her with a bullet to the head. He then shot her mother in both legs and fatally shot himself. When officers arrived, they found two spiral notebooks in which Teresa had documented her continued abuse, as requested by the Sheriff's Department. And though the Sheriff's Department tried to bury it, her murder has become a touchstone case in the fight to end violence against women. The Purple Berets, a women's advocacy group in Sonoma, helped her family find a lawyer, and on July 20, 2000, in the first ever monetary award by law enforcement for their failure to protect a domestic violence victim, the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department agreed to pay a million-dollar settlement to the family. Shortly before her death, Teresa told her mother, If I die, I want you to tell the world what happened to me. I don't want other women to suffer as I have suffered. I want them to be listened to. Teresa's death and the lawsuit that followed sent an emphatic message to women everywhere that they have a right to hold police accountable for their response to domestic violence. They have a right to be listened to. So that's our in memoriam. We remember Maria Teresa Macias, and we're happy that we're having an opportunity now to give her story a voice, and also that the police department is held accountable. Amen. So now we're going to go to our news stories for this week. And we have a story from uh, Monday, November 19th. This was the recent mass shooting at Mercy Hospital in Chicago. On Monday, November 19th, Dr. Tamara O'Neill was shot and killed by her ex-fiance in the parking lot of Mercy Hospital in Chicago. Also killed that day were police officer Samuel Jimenez and pharmacy student Dana Less. The shooter had a concealed carry license. At a press conference after the shooting, Emergency Department Director Patrick Connor grew emotional as he described Dr. O'Neill as dedicated to her church and patients. The 38-year-old physician graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago in 2016 and had worked as a resident at Mercy for two years. She raised money for disadvantaged children and led her church choir, Connor said, choking up with emotion and pausing frequently. That was her one thing she wanted, to be able to go to church on Sunday, he said, adding that they assured her that she could. We'll make sure you go to church on Sunday. Dr. O'Neill's murder, like the majority of women murdered in this country and throughout the world, was perpetrated by an intimate partner. Despite a federal ban on convicted domestic abusers from purchasing guns, there are still major problems. 
One is that many states have no laws or procedures to remove guns after someone is convicted of domestic abuse. The abuser may not be able to purchase a new gun legally, but what about guns he already owns? And of course, in many states, without universal background checks, a buyer can purchase a gun from a private dealer and not have to undergo a background check. This shooting at a hospital involving a physician who also happened at the time when there was already heightened tension between the NRA and the medical establishment. This was due to a recent policy paper published by the American College of Physicians advocating for gun violence prevention and for gun violence to be treated as a public health threat. The NRA had responded by telling doctors to stay in their lane, which led to physician outrage and activism against the NRA. One organization called AFFIRM, American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine, is a physician organization that formed in response to the NRA telling doctors to stay in their lanes. They have raised over $30,000 to set up a Dr. Tamara O'Neill Research Fund. To find out more about that, go to hashtag ThisIsOurLane. <laughs> um, on Thanksgiving Day, Kishana Jeffers was shot and killed at her apartment in Louisville, Texas by her on-again, off-again partner for the last 10 years. She lived at the apartment with their three children. The children, aged 7, 9, and 10, were home at the time and were present when their mother was shot several times through the head. Police say her partner shot and killed Jeffers and then fled the apartment. He then shot himself in the breezeway, where he was found still alive. He was taken to a hospital in critical condition. Police say the children ran to a relative's apartment in the same complex after the shooting. The relative called 911. One thing I can say is she loved her children, and her children loved her back. I can only imagine right now the kids are devastated, a friend told the media. In the U.S., women are 16 times more likely to be shot and killed than women in other developed nations. In an average month, 50 American women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. Women are more likely to be killed by someone they know rather than a stranger, but despite these facts, the gun lobby often uses the fear of strangers to sell guns to women. So now we're going to re a report on domestic violence statistics. Here is a list of facts concerning domestic violence and firearms. An American woman is fatally shot by her partner every 16 hours. Domestic violence claims over a thousand lives a year. Living in a state with high rates of firearm ownership increases a woman's risk of being fatally shot in a domestic violence incident by 500%. Many factors fuel the domestic violence epidemic but the presence of firearms increases the lethality and expands the number of victims. If domestic violence isn't bad enough in itself, it's also a training ground for mass shooters. Pamela Schiffman and Salamisha Tillett from the New York Times write, men who commit violence rehearse and perfect it against their families first. Women and children are target practice and the home is training ground for these men's actions later. An analysis by the Huffington Post found that in 57% of mass shootings, the attacker previously targeted a family member or domestic partner. Omar Mateen, 
who killed 49 people in the Pulse Massacre, held his wife hostage in their home, beating and verbally abusing her throughout their brief marriage. Devin Kelly, who shot and killed 26 people at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, was court-martialed on two charges of domestic assault after he beat and choked his wife and hit her infant son hard enough to fracture his skull. Charles Whitman, the Texas Tower sniper, killed 14 people in 1966, shortly after killing both his wife and mother. The list goes on. And the victims of domestic violence aren't limited to partners. Abusers intent on killing an intimate partner, especially with a gun, often kill other family members and even total strangers who are present by chance. The National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund reported that of police killed in the line of duty between 2010 and 2014, close to a quarter of the fatalities came from responses to domestic disputes. That percentage was larger than any other response category, including burglaries or shots fired. The deadliest call for an officer is responding to a domestic violence dispute. Abused partners and children, uninvolved bystanders, even armed police officers fall victim to the epidemic of domestic violence. Access to guns didn't cause this disease. It only makes it more lethal. So, Tricia, why do you think there's such gender inequity with stand-your-ground laws and domestic violence? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the gender bias in domestic cases is so extreme. A conviction for a male defendant in a typical domestic case is about 40%, but for a female defendant pleading a right to stand her ground, the probability of conviction is more than twice as high. It's over 80%. And some people think that um, it's a policy situation where most gun owners are male, and so the laws around using firearms and self-defense don't really reflect the lives of women. So what is the logic? There's, a, there's something about in South Carolina, they're not able to use the stand your ground as a defense in a, a case of domestic violence. The woman has been abused. She's killed or injured someone um, using a gun. Um, why wouldn't stand your ground apply there? Well, because stand your ground is a law that, you, you know, is specific to people protecting their domain, you know, uh, and because these couples are in relationships, it's their mutual domain. So stand your ground laws don't usually apply in those cases. But it's just a, you know, an issue with the law. I mean, clearly, we have to address stand your ground laws, hopefully in the upcoming year. Yeah. So it's been pretty grim so far, uh, but we're going to uh, take a look at a hero in uh, gun violence now with uh, a clip about the Lautenberg Amendment. Is this the line for tickets to take a rocket to the moon? No, this is the line for tickets to take Christ out of Christmas. Whoa, who's doing <laughs> So we do have Lautenberg coming up. 
On April 13, 2013, the assault weapons ban was defeated on the floor of the Senate by a vote of 60 to 40. The bill had been introduced as a reaction to the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, one of the most tragic examples of the country's gun violence pandemic. The perpetrator murdered his mother with a semi-automatic rifle before driving to the school and killing 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7, as well as six staff members. If meaningful gun control legislation was ever to be passed in the United States, the aftermath of Sandy Hook seemed the time to do it. One of the senators casting a minority vote, Frank Lautenberg, did it from his wheelchair due to failing health. He had missed a number of votes in recent months, but was determined to be in the Capitol for this one. Lautenberg, a Democrat from New Jersey, who would pass away two months later, was a man who cared deeply about gun control. One of the most enduring pieces of his legacy was the domestic violence offender gun ban, passed in 1996. The bill, nicknamed the Lautenberg Amendment, banned access to firearms by people convicted of domestic violence. Mr. Lautenberg liked to say that the law was dedicated to the simple principle that wife beaters and child abusers should not have guns. The bill's passage into law was celebrated as a watershed moment in the history of federal gun control. However, the Lautenberg Amendment was no cure-all. Under federal law, domestic violence is only considered so if the victim is currently or formerly married to or living with their abuser, or if the parties have a child together, even though roughly the same number of people are murdered by their dating partners as by their spouses. The gap in protection in the Lautenberg Amendment is known as the boyfriend loophole because it is particularly dangerous for women. According to a recent study by the Violence Policy Center, a disturbing 93% of women murdered by men in 2015 were killed by a man they knew. In the 22 years since the Lautenberg Amendment became law, Congress has not voted to close the loophole, though efforts have been made. The Zero Tolerance for Domestic Abusers Act was introduced last year by Representative Dan Donovan and Debbie Dingell with a Companion Act introduced in the Senate. The acts would update the federal gun law to ban access to firearms to abusive dating partners and stalkers, both still a way to vote. Certainly Frank Lautenberg would be the first to tell you that this amendment needed amending, and it's past time to push these bills through Congress. Hard to imagine what argument can be advanced in favor of letting stalkers and assaulters continue to have access to guns. Uh, thanks to Bridget McGinn for delivering that article about Frank Lautenberg, who's a true hero, a total badass. Um, so not only do we have to deal with the loophole that allows abusive boyfriends and stalkers access to firearms, these men use guns as emotional intimidation in relationships. Here is a feature by Paul Rowley to address coercive control. It's the constant threat. A gun left on the kitchen counter. You find it when you get home from work. The first time you think it's a mistake, he just forgot to put it back. But two days later, there it is, in the exact same place. And it doesn't take long to see the pattern. Every time you have a fight, every time you stand up to him, the gun is waiting for you. This method of psychological domestic violence is called coercive control. He sets up a regime of domination without having to lift a finger. It starts as constant belittling, criticism, and soon become strict house rules. Don't wear that dress. Don't go out so much. I want you home more often. 
It's not about hitting or hurting, but it sure is about taking away your freedom. How many times have we seen men belittle our female friends in front of us, speak down to you, make you feel like a fool? And how does this impact you when you get home alone with a man who puts you down in public and reminds you constantly that you are useless? And then he takes out a gun and very deliberately starts to clean it in front of you, in your own home. Or you come down to make breakfast and find his gun waiting for you on the kitchen table and it sits there for the whole day and it's there waiting for you when you get home from work and you have no gun. He won't allow that. And what do you do when you want to leave him? When your friends tell you they'll help you get out but he's just bought another gun and he always tells you he can't live without you and he'd rather die than lose you or more to the point, he'd rather kill you than let another person touch you. Maybe you're the girl who married so young and everyone told you not to and now you wish you'd listen to them all but you know if you leave he will follow you. Or maybe you didn't know or even acknowledge to yourself that buried deep down under all that shame they were pumping into you at church that it really is women you love. And how do you now even tell them that you've met someone and you're finally so in love? But you can never get away. When the first thing you see in the morning is a loaded gun sitting on the living room table and you know he will kill you both. And the threat of sex that you never want to have with him, backed up with that toxic pistol that hangs from his leather belt, the one he flashes at you whenever he thinks you're getting out of line, or to let you know it's bedroom time. What's a restraining order worth? A piece of paper that'll never stop a bullet. That's what he told you the last time he put you in the hospital. So you drop the restraining order, but then he comes to you in the hospital late at night and makes you hold the gun. I want you to hold this so you know it's real and so you know it's loaded. And who's going to help you? How do you even report it? If you had a black eye, you could show it to someone. But with this kind of abuse, you have nothing to show. And will anyone even listen to you? Will they tell you you're overreacting? Like the Alabama courts and police did to 41-year-old Deborah Ann Rivera. Deborah, who was repeatedly denied a permanent restraining order, even though she told police that her ex-husband had threatened her with firearms and had been stalking her and her new husband. And this July, he shot her and their roommate 43 times before turning the gun on himself. And local police? Well, they called it an unnecessary and unfortunate escalation of what appears to have been a long-term history of domestic violence. So until this country starts to recognise this violence as criminal and gets the guns out of the hands of these men who dedicate their lives to inflicting violence on women, millions of women will still have to walk past that gun on the kitchen table every morning as they grab the keys and go to work. Wow. Uh, thanks, Paul, for that incredibly disturbing and passionate piece. Um, if you want to know more about who we are and the work we do, please follow Gays Against Guns on social media. On Facebook, we have the calendar for our meetings, so if you live in New York or close by, come see us. We also have gag chapters throughout the U.S. You can find those and all our social media info at gaysagainstguns.net. And don't forget to become a Bay Buddy. A Bay Buddy is someone who signs up to make a recurring monthly donation to WBAI using either a credit card or debit card. It's safe, secure, simple, automatic, and means a great deal to keeping our unique and high-quality programming on the air. Once you've joined, you will receive a Bay Buddy card and a WBAI tote bag. Sarah has recently become a WBBA, a Bay Buddy. Yeah, that's a BAI buddy. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, the next time I'm on, if, if we don't see a few BAI buddies come on board, what we've got lined up next is Sarah on Kazoo. 
playing <laughs> my buddy, my buddy. So we're looking forward to that. Some no, joy. we hope not. Uh, we want you to sign up. And I, I've got to tell you that I have just fallen in love with community radio, and I hope that you are listening because you love this content as well. This is a message that we're able to give here that saves lives. I can't think of anything more relevant to our lives today, to the quality of our lives, than knowing that we can live safe without a threat of gun violence, without this type of coercion. And when these issues are spoken about on community radio, we get aware. We get out to vote. We get out to do the things that we need to do. So yes, I have become a WBAI buddy, and uh, I'm going to continue my love affair with community radio. Go, Sarah. contributions, with my time, my energy, and with all these great people from uh, GAG, Radio GAG. Uh, so it looks like we're running out of time, and we, at the end of our meetings and our radio show, we uh, always have some hell yes. So tonight's hell yes to everyone gathering this week to honor John Lennon and to Yoko and John for their gun violence prevention work. Hell yeah! Hell yeah to Sing Out Louise, our our satirical singing political quartet bringing resistance to a street corner near you. Hell Hell yeah. yeah! Hell yeah to WBAI for giving us the opportunity to reach out to all of you. Hell Hell yeah. yeah! And hell yeah to listeners like you. Thank you. Hell Hell yeah. yeah. Remember, Gag is watching, so listen to Gag. My name is Dan Ingram, and I'm a WBAI fan. They've always been, you know, the station that kicked butt and the station that said what you're not supposed to say because the people in power don't want to hear it, and I love that. I have to celebrate you, baby. It's a very unusual time for reporters, and I've been reporting here for 30 years. I've never seen anything quite like this. And so, you know, we're kind of taking it day by day. Covering Trump was going to be a real problem because he basically controlled what was written about him and said about him on TV very effectively because he understood how to manipulate journalists, how to plant stories with journalists who care about a good story, they don't care about the facts. There are many, many ways to have sound immigration policies that don't involve scapegoating entire segments of the world, entire countries, entire religions. Hi, I'm Jesse Lent, the host of Trump Watch on WBAI. Each week on the show, we take a deep dive on one specific aspect of the Donald Trump administration by speaking with journalists, academics, and activists on the front lines of covering this unprecedented presidency. Join me Wednesday nights at 6.30 for Trump Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. Hi, I'm Ken Gale of WBAI's Tuesday evening environmental show, Ecologic. One of the cool things about being a BAI buddy is that you get to decide what WBAI is worth to you. Are we worth more than your cable TV or 10 bucks a month, 20, 100, a million? Just go to the WBAI.org website and sign up with your credit card. You'll barely notice it. In return, you get a WBAI tote bag to show off, free or discounted entry to special WBAI events and other perks. Another cool thing about being a BAI buddy is less fundraising interruptions to your favorite programs. Go to WBAI.org. You can donate in the name of your favorite show, like uh, Ecologic.
Maliki McCourt here. Get your tickets at WBAI.org for our fun-filled Sunday afternoon, December the 9th, at the Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue. McDonough, Kilgannon, McCourt will be here with story, song, puns, awful jokes, and hypocrisy from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. It's a fundraiser for our beloved WBAI. I am Maliki McCourt, and if you have $20, get it into WBAI.org for a great Sunday afternoon. Thank you. This is Chloe Glickman, and I'm an intern at WBAI. Looking to get professional experience doing something you're actually passionate about? At WBAI, I'm able to develop skills in journalism, marketing, event planning, editing, social networking, and much more, all while working directly with producers and the management team. BAI is always taking applications for credit and non-credit internships, so get in touch today. Send an email to internships at wbai.org for more information. Join the team that supplied New York with independent radio for over 50 years. Help keep community radio going strong. Hi, this is Jerry Stiller. You are listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Where are my keys? Anybody see my keys? Who took my keys? <laughs> <laughs>